Well, welcome. Let's see, am I live? Can you hear me? Okay, very good. Thank you for letting me come here again this morning be with you. Uh, James and I like to do a pulpit swap like this the week after VBS is sort of a token of our church's continued cooperation. So uh, I'm going to be ending this at 10.35-ish, 10.40-ish, and then we're getting in our cars and running over to my church where James is going to speak there. So pray there's no accidents or uh, anything like impediments on the roadside. Uh, a word of thanks to all of you who participated in VBS this week. It's really just a joy to our hearts to see um, the camaraderie that our churches have with one another. And we're really grateful for the sacrifice you guys are making in coming over to our campus to help out with that. We realize that uh, there's little opportunity for numeric growth to occur for your church in coming. Not many of the kids are going to get on a bus and come all the way down uh, the cornerstone, but we trust that the Lord will enrich your hearts and grow you in other ways as a result of your service to us that way. Psalm 122 is our, our text this morning, and I uh, appreciate the brother for having read that. I'm reading this morning from the New American Standard. Uh, there may be a few things that are a little bit different. Of course, we'll point those out as we come along. Years ago, I had a workmate who uh, worked with me at the seminary library, and he also, because the seminary library pays such terribly little amount of money, he also had a second job working at Eddie Bauer. And most of his workmates there, of course, did not know Christ and had very different um, approaches to living. And out of curiosity, he asked one of his non-Christian workmates one day, he says, you know, I'm curious, what are your Sundays like? And the guy, uh, and, and this is a fascinating question to me because, you know, I grew up in the church. I, my dad was a pastor and uh, I came to know the Lord when I was four years old. So I, I cannot imagine a Sunday without going to church except to be some vacation someplace. I, I don't think I'd ever really thought about what it must have been like for a non-believer. He said that he usually slept in until about 11 o'clock. Then he fixed a big lunch would watch some sports, on, some sports on TV, and then maybe later on in the evening would go out on the town. And my friend just looked at him with this blank look and says, I can't identify with that at all. <laughs> and I felt the same way. And, it, and they, he didn't say that in a condescending way to him at all. In fact, he had opportunity to witness to him later on. But let me ask you, those of you especially who have known the Lord for some time, who have made it a habit to attend the assembly, can you imagine what your Sundays would be like without assembling with other Christians? Many of us cannot imagine that because it is a great delight to us. It's a high point of our week. But there are many within the Christian community, too many, for whom regular attendance is a drudgery. Perhaps for different reasons. Maybe the church that they're attending has serious problems and they're sort of burned out on it. Even people who are very committed to regular assembly, can go through seasons of dry spells. Today's study is on the pleasantries of being in God's house. Psalm 122, if you look at the very top of the psalm, underneath where it gives you the psalm number, it says that this is a song of ascents of David. The song of ascents, this is a special collection within the book of Psalms that were sung during the pilgrimages that the children of Israel would make to Jerusalem for three special festivals each year. Three festivals each year they were required to come up to Jerusalem, the men at least, the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover, which was held in April and May, the Feast of First Fruits, which was held in May or June, 
and the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, or in the New Testament it's called the Feast of Pentecost, which was held in our month of June and July. And this was a command of the Lord in Exodus 23, as well as Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 16, that they were to religiously observe these three feasts. So this was quite a big interruption in the in someone's calendar, you can imagine. Whatever they were working on in the fields or in their shops or in their boats, they had to put those things aside and make the journey to Jerusalem. For those who lived up in the northern regions of Israel, this was quite an expense and quite a, a loss of time. So to help them uh, prepare their hearts and not grow bitter and not grow angry, uh, there were, over the period of the centuries, a number of these songs that were written to help prepare the hearts of God's people as they gathered together for these special festivals. Fifteen different songs like that. Songs of preparation, songs of celebration, some of them songs of contemplation. This one, it we're told, is written by David. Now, this is unique. It's not the only one of the fifteen written by David, but uh, there are very few that are. Most of the others were written by authors of a later period. Some of them mention things which took place after the exile. So this is a very early song written for this purpose. And we know that it specifically is written for pilgrimage because of what verse 4 tells us about Jerusalem being the place where the tribes go up to. Now, this psalm, which was read in your hearing just a moment ago, is made up of three different sections or movements, and each one has a different emphasis. Verses 1 and 2 emphasize the joy of being together with God's people. Verses 3 through 5 emphasize the unity of God's people. And verses 6 through 9 emphasize the peace that is to be among God's people. And what I see in this psalm and these three movements are three components that make God's house a place of joy and peace. Components that we need to have in our churches. Now, of course, this psalm is written in the context of an ancient people, ancient Israel. And there are a number of things that are different between us and Israel. We don't have a holy city. We don't have a holy building. We don't have a special religious calendar. These things are different. In the New Testament era, there is no holy place. The Lord Jesus taught that the day was coming, and yes, had come, in which people will not say, should we worship in Jerusalem, or should we worship in this hill, but they, that God would be calling upon people everywhere, wherever they are, to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so, no more special places, no more special times, at least not on the grand calendar schedule. But we do have the same God. There are principles of praise, I think, that underline the specific Israelite context of this psalm. And we'll attempt to explain this psalm as it would have uh, been received by an ancient Israelite. And then, without spiritualizing, we'll draw out the spiritual principles that underline this psalm and continue on to our own day. So, let me give you, by way of preview, uh, three points. Firstly, this morning, God's house must be a place of celebration. Secondly, God's house must be a place of unity. Thirdly, God's house must be a place of prayer. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 and we see the first of those three points mentioned. God's house must be a place of celebration. 
I was glad when they said to me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Now look at David's joy. You can't help but read that with a smile on your face. David anxiously anticipated these special times of gathering. And please note that David's worship was not just a personal, individual, separated from everybody else sort of thing. But there are certainly many psalms that are very individualistic. My heart crying out to the God. God hearing my voice and answering my prayer. But worship for David was not limited to himself. Look in verse 1. Look at the plurals. When they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Verse 2. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Uh, David lived in Jerusalem all the time. But there was something special about the gatherings that made that city more alive to him than ever before. As a pastor, I, I can sort of empathize with this. I spend, I spend my entire week thinking and praying and working for our church and much of the time on our church campus. But for me, the whole week climaxes in the Lord's Day. Because the church is not the building, the church is the people. And the delight of seeing God's children gather together and fellowshipping and worshipping and serving one another and are jointly rejoicing together in God's truth. David was not one who was afraid to join in with the masses in worship and praise. Remember the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6 when the Ark of the Covenant was being taken from Kiriath-Jerim, being brought over into Jerusalem for the first time. And David himself leads the procession of the Ark toward Jerusalem and starts dancing shamelessly in front of the whole congregation, took off his royal ephod and left in just common clothes. And his wife says to him, what a fool you made of yourself. You're the king. But David looked forward to being with God's people of all status and stripe and age and worshiping God. Let us go into the house of the Lord. This is suggested to a number of scholars that perhaps David joined others in going outside the city of Jerusalem, meeting the incoming pilgrims and joining them in celebration and then returning back into the city in one great procession. This is something that commonly happened at the end of pilgrimage. The locals who lived in Jerusalem and Judea, roundabout, obviously they didn't have very far to travel. They knew that people coming from Dan and people coming even from the south from Beersheba and other places had made a very long, arduous journey, most, most of the time by foot. And so to uh, give them a great welcome, the locals would come out of the city and greet the pilgrims as they came and sing songs to them and uh, um, pronounce chants toward them and build up the anticipation of coming into the city. In fact, we see an example of this in the Gospels, in the Passion Week of our Lord Jesus, in the Triumphal Entry. The people being out there, out on the roadside, out in front of Jerusalem, that was a very common thing. What was different about it was that word had passed around to all these folks that Messiah was coming. And so their chants were louder and more extolling, in fact, proclaiming that uh, the Savior had come. David is so thrilled at the opportunity to join with God's people in praise. I suppose we ought to ask ourselves, how much anticipation ought we to have for the regular gathering of God's people? 
Is Sunday really the highlight of your week? Or is it that thing that you've got to do on the weekends to keep your conscience satisfied? Are there many Sunday mornings when you wake up and think to yourself, oh, if I just had three more hours. If I could just skip today. Maybe I can skip one Sunday a month. And you start to rationalize your participation in the assembly. Or do you awaken on Sunday morning excited at the thought of joining together with God's people, together forming the temple of God and singing with joy in your heart to Him? You know, so what if you don't have a a grand building? You know, you don't have a cathedral. You don't have a great big choir or what have you. We have a grand God. You know, the greatest thing about going to Jerusalem for the... For these feasts was not seeing the tabernacle and the temple and the priests and all their outfits. That was spectacular and it was intended to point to the solemnity of what took place there. But the greatest thing about Jerusalem was the God of Jerusalem. That was their real joy. And that, beloved, ought to be our joy today. God's house must be a place of celebration. Do you note in verses 3 through 5? God's house must be a place of unity. These verses describe what is so great about Jerusalem when these folks thought about it. The focus here is on the unity of the city in worship. And we see in verse 3 that unity illustrated in the very construction of the city. Jerusalem, that is built as a city, that is compact together. Have any of you been to Jerusalem? Okay, a couple of you. You've seen the pictures, I'm sure, of what's called the old city, the big walls that rise up. Actually, those were built in the Turkish era. They sit on top of walls from the Roman era and, and times even previous to that. The old city of Jerusalem is a very compact, narrow little place. Uh, so much so that as you walk down some of the alleyways, I mean, the shopkeepers can literally reach out and grab you if they, if they wanted to. Compressed housing. There's an automatic sense of community in a town, in a city like that. David's city of Jerusalem was considerably smaller even than the modern old city of Jerusalem. David's city sat on, not inside the current closed walls, but actually outside of it on the smaller hill called Mount Zion, and also Mount Moriah. It was actually only a half square mile wide. Very tight, very compressed. Jerusalem is a city that is compact together. And that compression added to the sense of unity and togetherness. Now, can you imagine all of these representatives, all of these men from all the different tribes now cramming themselves into this small city of Jerusalem. And why are they there? They're not there for an expo. They're not there for a sale. They're there for worship and celebration. And so the construction of the city led to the unity of the city, a city that is a unity in itself. One man even translates this expression. Now, as I mentioned earlier, our meeting places are not uh, sacred places. As I look around your auditorium here, I see congratulations, seventh graders. Uh, a poster about the school staff, the roadrunners even. Uh, there's nothing sacred about this place. 
by that, don't please don't misunderstand. I'm not at all saying, well, you ought not meet here, you know. But where we gather is not important in this era of God's plan of redemption. It is why we gather and what we do when we gather that is exceedingly important. I don't even like to call church auditorium sanctuaries. Well, I, sometimes I want to say, what, is there, are there birds flying around here? You know? I mean, God doesn't live within four walls. In fact, what's the Apostle Paul teaches is that we, God's people, plural, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we ought to be careful how we build on to one another, for we will give an account. And we will see what every man's work will be when it is tried by fire. It's not necessarily bad for a church to have a big building or even an impressive building, although I think there are tendencies for such things to become sources of idolatry. But it is exceedingly important for the spiritual structure of God's people to be strong and beautiful. Church buildings may be beautiful, but if the relationships of the people within it and the ministries within it are falling apart, then the focus is wrong. The unity of God's people in David's day were illustrated even in the construction of the city. Verse 4, we see that the unity was experienced in the fellowship of worship. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, verse 4, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance of Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Jerusalem was much more than the political capital of Israel. It was the spiritual center. It was the gathering place for the tribes for worship. Twice in this verse, the tribes are mentioned. I have a friend who uh, works with American Indians, um, helps them particularly with alcohol abuse. As many of you know, in the American Indian community, alcoholism is a, a terrible blight. And for his labors, uh, this man has been made a chief of the Cree nation of Indians, and not uh, what they normally regard as an honorary chief. He is actually considered a blood brother among these folks for having helped them, and it's led a number of them to Christ as well. And he's told me about a number of their gatherings, how impressive they are, about how different uh, representatives from the Cree nation will come from Canada and the United States together for powwows, and then some, sometimes multiple nations will gather together up in Canada for commemorations and cultural conventions. But, beloved, the gathering of these tribes together here in verse 4 is not for a cultural convention. What brought them together was not so much their blood connection as it was their spiritual connection. Who are these tribes? It's not just the tribes of Israel. Look how they're described. These are the tribes of Yahweh. These are God's people. That's what united them more than anything else. What is it that brings us together in places like this each Lord's Day? Is this a club? Is this, you know, a, a, some sort of a just recreational group that you go to every week? Of course not. You know, I'll tell you what, if, if it weren't for Christ, I tell my church this occasionally, not, not too often because I don't want them to misunderstand, I tell you, you know, if it weren't for the Lord Jesus, I would have nothing to do with lots of you. You know? I don't mean that in a, in a condescending way, but just there's some people within my congregation I have virtually nothing in common with. Except one very, very important thing. 
Christ Jesus. And that's what makes our assembly so different from anything else that's in the world. It's not our common interests in sports or politics or our lifestyle. The thing that unites us is a common interest in the Savior's blood. I'm so glad to see the diversity that God has brought within the body of Christ. That it is not, uh, initially there was concern that it would be just a Jewish thing, but it became very clear, no, it's not just a Jewish thing. It's not just an American thing. It's not a European thing. It's not an Asian thing. It is God's work. And God bringing people together of every tribe and nation and tongue to profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're told that this gathering of the tribes was, the New American Standard says, an ordinance for Israel. This is a difficult Hebrew expression. The most literal rendering is actually found in the King James Version and the New King James Version, which read as, uh, they gather to the testimony of Israel. Now, that could refer to one of two things. It could refer to the fact that when the Israelites gather together, that they would be giving testimony about God and His faithfulness and His goodness as those feasts reminded them, made them think of the ways that God was good to them. That could well be. Or it could be that rather this is a testimony or a commandment that the Lord had given to them that they should assemble these three times a year. And that's the way that most of our versions translate this expression. And so the New American Standard has this. This is an ordinance for Israel. Or the English Standard Version, this is what was declared for Israel the NIV, according to the statute given to Israel. Now, exegetically, interpretively, it it could go either way. Uh, Both are are clearly true. Whosever's testimony is mentioned in this phrase, though, it is very clear whose testimony is mentioned in the next one. This is the reason they gather together, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Now, don't just pass over that quickly. This Hebrew word, Thanks is a very misunderstood word. When we think of giving thanks, we think of me inside my heart all quietly. Thanks, God, you know. Um, The Hebrew word todah does not refer to personal, private thanksgiving within my heart. This is a word that refers to public acknowledgement. Publicly giving thanks. In fact, it's impossible for todah to be given except in public. And that's why you have statements like that. Let me read to you Psalm 6, verses 4 to 5. Listen to this. Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. For there is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? Now, sometimes we read verses like that and we think, wow, it sounds like David and the rest of those guys didn't believe in an afterlife. Ah, but that's not the point. The point is, David says, if I die, God, I will not be able to come into the assembly and give public acknowledgement for what you have done. In the grave, there's no public acknowledgement. Oh, yes, in heaven there may be, in God's presence there's praise for sure. But as far as me and my flesh gathering together with the rest of God's people, if I die, I cannot give todah anymore. And so, when this verse, back here in Psalm 122, giving public acknowledgement to the name of the Lord, 
thanksgiving is not something we ought to keep to ourselves all the time. It's, it's good for us to have opportunities within our meetings, whether they be small groups or large groups, to have opportunities to, to, to rise up and speak and say what good things the Lord has done for you. Because then other people realize that's not, oh, well, <laughs> uh, what I experience is not just my own personal experience. God's at work in many different lives and accomplishing His great purposes. Their unity was expressed or illustrated in the construction of the city. It was experienced in the fellowship of worship. Verse 5, their unity was expressed in the practice of justice. Now, here especially is a place where there's going to be a difference between Old Testament Israel and the modern church. Look verse 5. For there, that is in Jerusalem, there thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. When these tribes gather together three times a year, doubtless there would be perhaps families or even whole tribes, certainly individuals, who had conflicts with other people who were gathered there. Conflicts over property rights or watering rights or uh, sales that had gone bad or what have you. And, and what a terrible thing to gather together for worship and have bad blood between your blood brothers. And so that worship would not be distracted by conflict this way, we're told that the royal courts were open to settle disputes so that there would truly be unity amongst God's people. Such cases were handled, uh, are described being handled by the royal courts in 2 Samuel 15 and 1 Kings chapter 3. You could take a look at those later on if you like. Now, surely when we come here... Um, into your assembly place when I come to my assembly, we, we don't have royal courts, do we? Uh, I mean, here's a place where the church today is very different from the kingdom of Israel. As a church, we don't have courts. In fact, we theologians refer to the church age, church age as the interregnum, the period between the physical political kingdoms. Uh, there was the kingdom of Israel in ancient days where God mediated His rule. There's the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial reign. But now we don't have that kind of political, social structure like they had in ancient days. And our church councils and things like that, none of that is equivalent to these sorts of courts. But, but, is it not true that we ought to be able to come to God's house, to come to those who are gifted with wisdom to come to the leaders of the assembly and have our problems sorted through. If there's any place that people ought to be able to come to have their problems dealt with, it ought to be Christ's church. Now, now please, don't, don't think by my saying a statement like that that I'm saying that Pastor James and Bob and Bent and anyone else who stands behind this platform, or even myself, that, oh, we have all the answers. Come to us and we'll sort through everything real quick and tidy for you. That, 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 James knows very well that that just doesn't happen. I mean, there are many, many complexities to life. Things are difficult often. But collectively, as God's people, we ought to be able to pool together wisdom and resources, if not within the elder team within a particular church, then the network with other churches, and to help people solve their conflicts, to mediate tensions, to sort through difficulties that they're going through. I mean, did not the Apostle Paul chastise the church at Corinth 
because some there in the Corinthian church were actually going to the secular law courts to have their disputes settled. And Paul, Paul asked them, what are you people thinking? I mean, don't you realize that in the age to come that you will be given jurisdiction over angels and you can't settle the simplest little things yourself? Much better it is to come to the assembly and to seek help. And while a church council or an elder board does not have perhaps the, the legal ability of a modern court, there is nonetheless the gifting of God within a local assembly to help people sort through things. And so I, I encourage you, beloved, not to allow tensions, conflicts, disputes with each other to soil and spoil this fellowship. but to seek always reconciliation. And if you're having trouble doing it, if the other person won't cooperate, or if they just want to ignore the problem and not really deal with the problem, to, to kindly and gently seek help. And that you also pray for your shepherds. That God would grow them in wisdom to sort through such things. That there truly may be a joyful peace in God's house. Verses 6 through 9, her final point this morning, final main point. God's house must be a place of prayer. God's house must be a place of prayer. These verses are preoccupied with prayer and a specific type of prayer. Specifically, prayer for the peace of God's house. And we learn in these verses that peace and unity do not just automatically perpetuate themselves, nor do they protect themselves, but they require vigilance, require us to seek God's help that they might be maintained. And so, in the beginning of verse 6, we have the command to pray for peace. Look at that. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. This is a verse that is often quoted whenever there's uh, some conflict in Israel, you know, an, another suicide bombing or an Israeli military action, and you'll hear folks on Christian radio quoting this verse. And that's not necessarily a misuse of this verse, but we're going to see that there's much more to this prayer than just the ceasing of hostilities, especially in a political or warfare sort of sense. And we'll discuss at the end some ramifications of that command. Look now at the middle of verse 6 and note with me the content of the prayer of peace. Here David tells us exactly how it is we are to pray for peace and particularly for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Quote, here's what you pray. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. I find it very interesting that David does not begin by praying for things or conditions or conflicts. He begins by praying for people. May they prosper who love you. They, that is the, the faithful of the city of Jerusalem. And may peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. Two things particularly. 
peace is shalom. And the word for prosperity is shalwa. Shalom and shalwa. Pray for shalom and shalwa. Peace and prosperity. Or, I think a better way of rendering this, peace and security. Now, please understand, peace. Don't limit that in your mind to think that it just means uh, protection from war or the cessation of hostility. It is much broader than that. Clearly, some of that is intended. There's a reference to the palaces and to the walls. These are, uh, at least the walls are defensive structures. But the focus is not so much on what's taking place outside the city as attack being placed upon it, but what's taking place, notice this, within the walls, within the palaces. It is not just an external peace, but a true internal peace for the city that is being prayed. Peace, shalom, wholeness, everything being as it ought to be. You know, why, why, why do, why do uh, Jews greet one another with shalom and the Arabic equivalent salam? Because the idea is more than just being free of conflict, but is let everything be whole. Everything as it ought to be. You know that our English expression, hello, have I shared this before? I don't remember if I had. Hello? You know where that comes from? It comes from an old Anglo-Saxon expression uh, from the word whole. Be whole. May everything be as it ought to be. Peace. May everything be as it ought to be within Jerusalem. And then, then this, this term, prosperity. We saw, may they prosper who love you, and then prosperity within your walls. Now, I need to say a word about this because this is a verse which a lot of people would like to sort of rock it off into prosperity teaching and say, see, here it is in the Scripture. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if you send me 1995, I'll send you this prayer cloth and, you know, you can become that way. It is true that the Old Testament does contain promises to the Israelites of physical prosperity, financial prosperity, uh, that their land would be flowing uh, with milk and honey. But please note that those promises are always attached to the promised land of Israel. It is a geographical promise. Um, now, I don't know. I've looked in my New Testament pretty good, and I, I can't find any New Testament promises to me that I have land privileges. You know? I don't have any, God's not made any covenant with me to guarantee that my garden will grow every year. Now, that, that doesn't happen. This is part of the difference between God's Old Testament dealings with His people and His New Testament dealings. God dispensed His rule one way in this dispensation, and He dispenses it another way in the current age in which we live. But having said that, financial prosperity does not exhaust the sense of this word either. In fact, in some places, the notion of prosperity is not really the proper English word to draw out the nuance. Prosperity and peace are here coupled together almost as synonyms. Things being as they ought to be. The richness of peace. Having the leisure to not be concerned about fightings and conflicts and the like. And so this is why the New International Version and the English Standard Version translate the word prosper and prosperity as security. May they be secure who love you. And I think this is an appropriate rendering. My family is half Arabic. Uh, my dad's side came from Syria 
And my grandma had an expression that she would use occasionally. Uh, when something was good, when something was pleasant, she'd say, Tachet el habina. Now, when I went to Israel and I met uh, various Palestinians and bus drivers and what have you, and, I, and some of them would recognize some Arabic features, uh, mustache and you know, dark hair and all that. And uh, so I'd start throwing out um, some Arabic at them, you know, just to see how bad I was. And none of them could understand what I was saying. And I said, you know, you know, Tachet uh, el Dina, under the fig tree. That's what it was, under the fig tree. Grandma would say that whenever something tickled her or was pleasant because in that part of the Mediterranean world, um, to be able to go in, your, in the afternoon and sit in your backyard underneath the fig tree with its thick leaves and lots of shade was something of a pleasantry, a luxury. Things were at peace. Uh, and so we find even references in the Old Testament to this sort of thing. In uh, Micah chapter 4, verses 3 to 4, listen to this. Talking about the millennial kingdom. He will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. That's the sort of peace and security that is being prayed for in this psalm. Not so much rolling in luxury as it is resting in peace. Well, ought we not to be praying that way for one another? Not so much in our physical, financial, social conditions, but that within our church, that when we come to church, we're not always like we're on guard, on edge, not able to relax because there's unresolved conflicts and tensions that have not been dealt with. You ought to regularly pray for your church that this sort of peace and wholeness would be known. And you say, well, you know, Pastor Scott, well, we, we have got a pretty good group here. I mean, we've got our small groups. We, goodness, we're going to go play football this afternoon or whatever. And, you know, we get along pretty well. Do not take that for granted. I'll tell you, our adversary would loves to sow discord within the assembly. You pray fervently for the peace of God's house to be maintained. Look with me, please, verses 8 and 9, at the motivation for the prayer of peace. We've seen the command for it, the content of it, the motivation of the prayer for peace. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Your good. That is Jerusalem's good. He's speaking to the city. David's prayer for peace has a twofold motivation. For the good of the fellowship, my brothers, my friends. And again, not just his physical blood brothers, but his spiritual brothers. For the good of the fellowship. And the last verse shows us it is also for the glory of God. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God. God's name is at stake in the unity of God's people. And what does it say? And what does it say? When people within the church are at each other's throats, 
can't settle their differences, can't overlook small things when they ought to be overlooked, won't go to seek help or agree to receive mediation when they have problems. What does that say about God's workings? What sort of shame does that bring on the name of God? And so for the sake of the house of the Lord, which here is sort of a metonym for God himself, we pray this way. If the church is going to be unified in peace, then we must all be laboring in prayer to that end. Your church may be fairly free of disputes, but believe you me, it does not take much for that to change. Never forget that the assembling together, together, the assembling together of God's people, uh, that, that this is God's house, not so much yours. I know one pastor who says he refuses to refer to his church as my church. He says because it's not my church; it's God's church. And I don't want people. He says I don't want people to misunderstand and think that I own it or that I run it. Now, yes, in a sense, in the sense of association, is this your church? Yes. But, beloved, it is not your church in terms of ownership. It is Christ Jesus. And so, for the sake of your brothers and sisters, and for the sake of your Savior, you should be given over to this sort of regular prayer. Strife and conflict in God's house mars his reputation. Three components that make God's house a place of joy and peace. We've seen God's house must be a place of celebration. God's house must be a place of unity. God's house must be a place of prayer. And in particular, prayer for the previous two things. I'd like to conclude with some comments on praying for the peace of Jerusalem. I think there's a twofold lesson for us in this psalm. I think it is good for us, yes, as Christians here in America, to pray for the literal city of Jerusalem because we know from the Scriptures that God is not done with the people of Israel, nor is He done with the city of Jerusalem. It is a most unique city within the world. It is the only place of real estate that is to one day become the center for worldwide worship. So let me give you three means or ways to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Number one, and this is the most commonly understood way, pray for peace to win out over hostility. God is not one who delights in bloodshed and death and suffering. And in fact, the Old Testament tells us that God pronounces a blessing on those who bless His people, Israel. Um, so we ought to pray for the city of Jerusalem. When you hear of things in the news, it is wholly appropriate for you as a Christian to pray that way. Now, let me quickly say, that does not mean that you as a Christian are required to unilaterally support everything that Israel does. Does Israel ever make mistakes? Does Israel ever go too far? Are they ever unjust? Well, sure they are. Now, let me ask you, Old Testament prophets, were they pro-Israel? Yes, 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 yes. Of course they were. Did they ever speak out against what Israel did? Yes. Oh, very vehemently. 
very strongly. But they spoke those things for the good of Israel, not for its harm. So, I'm not saying that you need to be blindly supportive of Israel. That's not what I'm saying. But to nonetheless pray for that place of the world which, upon which God has His eye. Secondly, pray for Jerusalem to turn to the Prince of Peace. This is an often neglected part of this in modern evangelicalism. The only time there will be real peace and wholeness is when there is a genuine spiritual peace that this psalm focuses on. Don't forget, the focus of this psalm is not military political peace. It is spiritual peace. And the only way today that though the inhabitants of Israel of Jerusalem, be they Jew or Arab, will truly know lasting peace is by coming to know the Prince of Peace. Thirdly, pray for the return of the Prince of Peace. Pray for the return of the Prince of Peace. That's really when the enduring, lasting calm will come, isn't it? You know, there may be successful treaties and the ro- who knows, this road map that's been laid out, it might actually work for a while, but not forever. The only ruler who will ever come to bring an enduring peace to that place is the one who comes and brings the new Jerusalem, the holy city of God. Now, let me make one last level of application. And it's something that I've been stressing throughout this message. That we, as God's people today, as the church, ought to be a peace-loving people. And it ought to be so evident within our churches, the way we interact with each other, the way we care for one another, the way we confess things to one another when we've wronged one another, the way we grant forgiveness. That ought to just permeate our assemblies. The church, you see, even though this is the interregnum and we don't have a political kingdom structure here on earth, the church is supposed to be a foretaste of what the kingdom on earth will be like. People ought to look within the church and say, ah, that is what God's grace is doing in the world. That's why Paul calls us heirs of the kingdom. We are people of the future. And so we ought to live. The world should be able to look at our lives and at our assemblies and see something of what is yet to come. And to do that, friends, we cannot just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We must give ourselves to prayer and commit ourselves to loving and delighting in our God together in peace. Father, we thank You for the Word. We thank You for its relevance. This psalm, which is nearly 3,000 years old, though written to a different people and a different context, speaks so beautifully to us. And God, we recognize that within our own hearts that we are not a peace-loving people, that we are prone to conflict and strife and selfish dissent. And we so badly need the workings of Your Spirit 
the outpourings of your grace in our hearts to make us like our Lord Jesus. That's what we desire, our God. And so we pray, our Lord, that you would make this assembly and all of your houses a place of peace. We have delighted in you this morning, our God. You are a great God. We are glad to have come here today for our feet to be here. We rejoice in your glory and your grace. We pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen.